0: Well, it's been a few weeks, obviously, but we're back uh, together and we're picking back up in Revelation. The title of the series, as we know, the time is near, that as we read Revelation, to be mindful that we're living in the time it's talking about. We're in the last days. We're not quite in uh, the tribulation period, but God has a word for the churches uh, right before all the judgment happens and we're in that time and we're about to get into chapters two and three which specifically are the words of Jesus to his church, to um, the seven lampstands, the seven factions of his church uh, that we'll look at uh, in the next couple of chapters. But as we remember, a lot of people tend to be afraid of this book because of its mystery, because of its judgment, and really kind of because of both, perhaps. Uh, Some people are scared of the judgment and don't want to know about it. Some people try and dismiss it, and so they want to pay no mind to it. But the judgment is real. God is a just God, and in order for Him to be a just God, sometimes judgment does have to happen. But if we do remember also what we read earlier in chapter 1, we read that there's a blessing to this book. There's a blessing if we read it, simply. There's a blessing if we hear it and understand it as well. And more than that, if we keep the words of this book, if the words of this book stay in our heart and our mind, and in fact impact our lives and how we live, that there's a major blessing in that and this book has been instrumental in bringing me back to the lord and to the lord in general um, but revelation speaks of the judgment of the end that these judgments are coming on the inhabitants of the earth that th- we're talking about the final judgment for believers we'll see one day as well uh, the condemnation of the enemy and the fallen angels and the similar demise of those who follow them so we're going to see at some point The judgment that comes on the earth to get people's attention and to bring judgment on sin and on the governments of the world, but also that there's going to be a final great white throne judgment where those who have followed Jesus are brought to a judgment of rewards, more like an Olympic ceremony, and those who have not followed Him are brought to a judgment, uh, more like at the end of a trial when your sentence is announced. Um, But with that, that God really desires no one go to hell. And I think that that is counterintuitive to what many people would think these days, that God desires people to go to hell and that, oh, if you only choose him, then he won't send you to go there. But that's not his heart, that we see that hell was created for Satan and the fallen angels, not for us. Satan' his wish and desire is that we would go to hell with him. If he isn't totally convinced of his end yet, um, you know, his end is there. But if you do end up going there, and there's a deeper doctrine on hell that we can get into at some point, but it's because you chose it. It's because you decided that following Jesus, going after the God of love and receiving his love and forgiveness for you, was not good, was not true, was not right, was somehow unjust, and that you were the, the master of your own destiny. That's true. You have free will. You are the master of your own destiny. You can choose to go to heaven and you can choose to go to hell. But there are conditions to living to both that one will get you to heaven and one will not. And it's not by works. It's by faith. But man, uh, like the half-brother of Jesus said, show me your faith by your works and I'll show you my works by my faith. But after all, Revelation is not just Revelation. The real title is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. That the point of all this is to reveal truly who Jesus was. If we didn't get it when he first came, if we didn't get it in the other 65 books, we're supposed to get it now. It's the clearest picture yet of who he is and his ultimate authority. Maybe we dismiss creation as evolution. Maybe you dismiss Jesus as just another religious teacher. But in the light of revelation, we have no other choice but to accept Jesus as God or to reject him. But what did Jesus do? What does this want ultimately to reveal to us besides that? That he died on the cross and that he rose again, that we might be free from our sin and saved from the judgment. And like we mentioned earlier, that we would be rewarded with eternal life in heaven. That that's what God wants to reveal here. Ultimately, the judgment is revealed. What's going to happen is revealed. But that's not the point of revelation. The point of revelation is that we might be woken from our sleep and slumber and brought into heaven with him, and be free from the judgment to come. It's a warning, like we talked about in another message. Like Before the United States bombs a country, they send out leaflets to say, watch out, we're going to bomb you tomorrow, because we want to save the, the innocent people. But unfortunately, it also warns the wicked. And God is doing them both here. He wants to warn the righteous and warn the wicked of the times to come. And again, there will be hard things in this book, both to understand and And also to accept. And these things are about God, about the church, like we're about to look at in the next two chapters, about the world, about the time we live in, about the end. A lot of people have different ideas about the end. The Mayans thought the end was coming seven years ago, and it didn't happen. About what comes next, after our time in this life, after even just uh, this period of history that we're in, but also in eternity. What even happens after this creation is done away with? And also about our own responsibility and destiny. These things might be hard to stomach, hard to swallow, bitter in our mouth and in our stomach, or maybe even sweet in our mouth and bitter in our stomach, like John says about the scroll. But again, today and for the next few studies, we're going to be looking at the church and the words specifically of Jesus to his church. Remember, this is John's vision, that when he was spending time with the Lord on Sunday, he heard a loud voice behind him, and he turned around, and he had this vision of Jesus and glory. And he walked amongst these seven lampstands, and he had seven stars in his hand. And these seven lampstands, it's confusing, but a couple of verses later, Jesus tells him what it is. That these are the seven churches. And in fact, these tend to be specific churches in their very day. These were specific cities that existed that we'll see. There were also specific church ages throughout history. That throughout history, there have been uh, there's some uh, differences on how they lay them out and what years we kind of pick because there's no specific rule book. It's only something that you can perhaps scholarly decide to look at and make judgments on. But that throughout history, there have been different church ages, almost as if different dynasties of the church, so to speak. And also, I believe it can speak about seven types of congregations. That even in the church today, your church might be more like the church we see today, the Ephesian church. Maybe it's more like the Smyrna church. You know, Smyrna is a persecuted church. I would say that the true church in China probably aligns very much so with the church in Smyrna. And not to say that other churches don't align there as well, but a church that is heavily persecuted like that, um, you know, it's something we're not really too familiar with quite yet here in America. But the seven stars were the seven leaders of the churches, uh, the seven messengers, the seven angels. The word angel is a word for messenger. I don't believe it, it means that there's a, that this message is to, so to speak, a heavenly creature that is over every congregation. That the message to them and then the angel speaks to the person. No, that's, that's cultic. We get our word from the Holy Spirit and from the Word of God, and not to say that there might not be specific angels assigned to even specific congregations, but this message to the messenger is to the head, to the lead pastor, to the the leadership of the church, both in history, both specifically, and even to today. Um, but what's interesting is we'll see as we're only going to cover seven verses here today because the intro is quite long, but that there are different uh, facets and different personalities. Um, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. That we're going to see that uh, the lampstands have no guarantee. And that's interesting. You would think that these lampstands are permanent. That once it's a lampstand, it's permanent. But as Jesus walks through, he says, watch out. I might have to remove your lampstand. That we have as believers, really more as a church itself, you know, I don't want to confuse the idea of uh, once saved, always saved, or losing your salvation. I don't want to get that in there. But Jesus is kind of saying that, hey, if the church as a body of Jesus is not living, it's going to be removed. And these seven church ages, some of them overlap, some of them end, uh, perhaps some continue to the end. As we get into it, I'm not going to necessarily say one way or the other, but some may go on past the rapture. I don't know. Um, you know, Again, if it's they claim to be a church, but they're not really the church, they claim to be Christians, but they're not really in a relationship with the Lord, of course they're going to be here after that. Uh, assuming you even buy the, the argument of the rapture. And we'll get into that uh, a little bit later, because there are different views, and I do want to uh, expound on them a little bit more at a different time. But churches throughout history, and churches even today, have different facets, uh, personalities in and of themselves. Uh, We went to, a couple weeks, two weeks ago, uh, Thanksgiving Community Service, which was great. It was with a bunch of different uh, churches and denominations in the area. Um, some i may have more questions about others uh, might uh, be more legitimate in in my mind and perhaps the scripture's mind but it was nice to meet other believers to see people from other churches be able to fellowship a little bit talk to other pastors be able to share and receive some worship and some devotionals from other pastors but it's nice to meet other believers sometimes you you know you feel like you're the last one on earth and then you go and you fellowship with some others who go to a different building And you see, that's the same Spirit of God that I know and these other people that I know in my life. And it's really, really refreshing. But with that, about the end times, some of the few things in the church, there are some, I think we tend to debate about everything, but in the church specifically about the end times, there are very siloed and rigid views of the end times. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, millennial, and these things we can get into more in another time. But we tend to be divided over these things. And I don't know that it's necessarily a divisive issue. I think that obviously the deity of Jesus, uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the uh, validity of the scriptures, these things are things that we can choose to be divided over in a healthy way. But man, if, if you don't believe that you're going to get raptured, if you think you're going to be in the tribulation of the end, okay, more power to you. I mean, I, <laughs> I want to go as soon as possible. But I'm open to the idea that I could be wrong about the idea of the rapture happening before the tribulation. I think, in some sense, it matches up with the heart of God a lot. But, I, you know, I could see other arguments for otherwise. I could see the scripture perhaps saying other things. This is not something that we can necessarily nail down to a point where we can say that someone is either saved or not saved by that doctrine. It's, it's opinion. And, you know, hey, if you want to hang around for the tribulation, go for it. I don't want to be here. We can even look at things like, uh, Enoch being raptured, so to speak, before the flood, and yet Noah goes through the flood. So I, I don't necessarily know how to reconcile those things in a 45-minute in a to an hour message, but they are things to consider and to hang on to, and like Jesus says, to keep, and we'll have blessing in that. Because again, in a room full of 10 people, you'll probably even have more than 10 opinions uh, you know, we look at things like Calvinism and Arminianism and parts of the church that are divided. And I look at them and I go, guys, you're both right in a sense. If you just come together, you would see the greater truth that you, you are chosen and elected, but you also had to choose. That there's a double-sided coin there. And I might say some of the same thing for some of these end times views. As Yoda might say, uncertain the future is. Uh, and, but prophecy, in a sense, tells us of a certain future. Prophecy is very clear about a very specific and certain future that is going to happen and in fact is being aligned to happen right now. The problem is, as we read the prophecy, the way that it's given, and the way that it's, uh, it's the, the writer is from 2000 years ago, some of it can be a little murky. We're not necessarily given the specific players in one sense, and yet another sense, if we read and do a little research and study, we kind of do see some specific players. We may not be given the specific technology but we're given what the spirit of the age is going to look like very specifically. And because of these things sometimes we want to write them off as not happening or impossible or far out. But I I think it's been ready to go for a long time at least since the formation of Israel. God could come back at any moment. The scripture is clear. There's nothing else that seems to have to happen for these end times events to happen. They're ready to go. It's at the doorstep. At any moment, that trumpet can sound. And again, although the scenarios the scenarios are very clear, the specifics, the, minor, the minute details, perhaps, in the physical realm aren't always as clear. But as time goes on, even I've just been walking the Lord 16 years and the time that I got saved until now, things seem to be getting very, very, very clear and clearer and more clearer Faster and faster and faster. Because it is the end times. And Jesus says, and uh, God uh, through the prophet Joel, uh, prophesied in Joel 2.28-32, through 32, and this is quoted by Paul, uh, I believe in Acts 2, and it says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Actually, Luke wrote, back, sorry. Uh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also my men servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Has not God poured out his spirit? Has there not been great revival in the past two centuries? Over and over and over. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness. And we'll see that in Revelation in a few chapters. The moon into blood. Therefore the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. People still, when you turn on the news, oh, it's going to be a blood moon. Is this what the Bible is? For? It's close. It's like a type of it, but it's not the final mood. When you finally see it, it's going to be as blood red. It's not going to be this orange thing that we see. It's going to be clear and red and no joke that blood red. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into the blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts stops quoting you there, and I love how it says, For in Mount Zion... And in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. There's going to be a remnant of Israel. There's going to be a remnant of people in this time that survive. And God says, just call on my name and I will save you. You might still have to continue through this physical judgment, but know that you will be saved. You will not face eternal judgment. And it's as easy as calling on him, but people are so, so stubborn and evil and set in their ways and so would I, if it wasn't for Jesus. That even when the heavens are falling apart, they cry out for the mountains to fall on them rather than repent. But another sign in these last days is that knowledge is increased, both practically, if we look at the past 100 years or so, the information age, and spiritually, like we read, even Daniel 12:4, uh, Daniel's given the message, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Daniel is saying that the words of Daniel, the prophecies in Daniel, might not make a lot of sense throughout history, but at the end of time, they're going to make a lot of sense. And the prophecies of Daniel are coming to light and making a lot of sense when we're able to look back on history and the kings and the rulers and know exactly what dynasties these were that he talks about. But it says, men shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. To and fro. I mean, I commute to Maryland for work and in just a few hours, I can be. Clear across the continent if I was a really wealthy man, I'd have my own private jet and I could be in Japan a lot faster than I could on uh, my coach level uh, Connecting flight that people all over the world Thousands of people are in the air right now hundreds of thousands maybe even flying around uh, Going constantly we're going to the moon. We're going to other planets. We're uh, If you don't think that this verse is fulfilled um, I, I would encourage you to take another look and also, the way the world stage is getting set up, it seems pretty clear how this end time is going to play out at any moment. Again, things could change, but I do believe that the world is preparing for itself. It seems obvious. Almost, You, know, you say believe, and it's almost like there's some doubt, but I think it's kind of obvious. If you look at the Middle East and China, and compare it to Revelation, if you've read it before, and other prophecies, uprisings across the world, the way technology, cashless society, I would think, oh man, it's never going to catch on because the third world is never going to have it. But you look at places like Africa today, they're more cashless than we are now. It's easier for someone to have a cell phone with a bank account connected to that than to have a real bank account. And they pay each other with text messages and apps in a dirt road in the middle of Somalia, while here we're still fumbling with cash. And I appreciate that. I enjoy cash. But you think that, oh, it might take some time for it to catch up. But no, it's the Western world that's about to catch up to that. We look at all the things with security, identity theft, it's happening. The world is ready. At any moment, they could just flip the switch and force us all to do it, and we'd have to do it, especially with the amount of inflation. If you look at how little money is worth and how governments are propped up by wars and treaties and other things, at any moment, if we lose favor, they could switch, they could flip the switch. And in fact, even they do that in third world countries when they're uh, just to try and, this president of uh, Somaliland flipped the switch and said overnight that their money was worth more to try and, um, you know, boost his pop- popularity. Morality has flopped. We look at UFOs. Well, we could talk about those another time. Things the Pope says. The leader of the Catholic quote-unquote church. The things he says about fundamental Christians. About Bible and about God. Look some of these things up. The state of the church. The evangelical church. The Protestant church. America being divided. Europe being united. Russia, Iran, and China. That's Gog and Magog, people. The Middle East is aligned. Israel not favored. I could go on and on and on. But I'll spare you. But the world... All the chess pieces are set up. Everything's ready for, boop, these things to happen and this one world leader to pop on the stage. But I'm not looking for him. I used to try and figure out who he might be. But I'm just looking forward to Jesus coming. But the world's going to be on fire. And perhaps your life is on fire. I saw a video of a man whose car was on fire in St. Louis and the firefighters came to put it out and he started fist fighting them. And they tackled him to the ground, and they just tried to let him up, like, hey, look, like we're here to help you. And he gets up and starts fighting again, and they have to tackle him again. And I think sometimes, man, when our life's on fire, God comes to try and put that fire out, and we fight him. And that's what we're going to see in these last days, that the world is on fire, and God says, I can put this out if you just say the word. And instead, we pick up arms to fight him and be ready to fight him when he comes. But the world is not going to have another flood. As much as the UN and the world would say that there's global warming, they're they're not afraid of the warmth. They're afraid of the warmth going to melt the ice caps and flood the world and change the environment. But we know that we have seasons of seasons, that the world goes through times when it gets warmer and cooler, even in the midst of a couple of decades. And we look at this little girl who's propped up. You think any of this little girl's words are a no? Oh, no. that She's a funnel for an agenda. She's being used. I listened to uh, someone talk about the Irish government. Uh, those are from Ireland. And it talks about them wanting to take the initiative that the school children brought them about. What they should do about global warming and the taxes. And change the world and change the business. And put more controls on people. But... Those kids go to schools run by the government where they learn things that the government teaches them. So how noble is it to listen to children? And are we in a state where we as adults are going to take advice from angry kids? If I took advice from my children all the time, as much as they cry and whine or want it, it wouldn't be good for them and it wouldn't be good for us. Something's fishy there. And it's going to get much, much hotter, but not from our carbon emissions, but because of the judgment of sin. The world is broken, and it's going to be broken even further in judgment. And the sun's going to get hotter. And it's all going to happen at God's command. That God is going to allow these things to happen by the trumpet's command, and there's nothing we can do to stop that. No amount of stopping plastic straws, even looking into that, look at where most of the world's plastic pollution comes from, comes from China and Africa and the rivers over there where they don't care. You think that a few plastic straws is going to change it? You're kidding yourself. But there's nothing we can do to stop God's judgment coming. But there's one thing we can do, and that is to repent. We can be counted free of the judgment of God because of the judgment He already put on Jesus. That creation and ultimately humankind in the beginning, from the beginning, was meant to reveal Jesus. We are meant to revel in His love and have our relationship known to Him. But all that was broken, as we saw in our study in Genesis. We broke that. Sin broke that. The world has been broken since. Creation still reveals Him, like Romans 1 says. Even in its broken state, we can still see who God is and how He works. But mankind still tries to obscure God and does through sin, and it clouds our vision of Him. But God redeemed us And yet we still continue in it. We still decide to try and put Him down and come up with a new way of doing things when it's clear that the only way out is what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. And the reason why Revelation comes, the reason why God has to correct His church here in these last days is because it's going to take a shaking of the whole world. The church needs to be in the right place to bring the message of the gospel in the end. And I don't think we are but we can be the fabric of creation and reality itself and the destruction of its governments of its systems of actual mountains of people of people unwilling to repent. These are the things that have to happen to try and wake us up because we are so hardened to the truth of God. We are so set in our ways and our sin that God has to come around and so to speak, try and smack us in the face to wake us up because we are so deceived in 1 Peter 4, 15-19, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. That he says that Christians, we're going to suffer. And if we've suffered, do it for the right thing. And verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Peter says that even the church is going to suffer tribulation and judgment, and even those who the world might look on and think are righteous or in this day and age unrighteous that the people who follow God are only saved because of God, they're not saved because of their good people, that even if they're scarcely saved, even the most righteous person you think of barely makes it to heaven because of the blood of Jesus, what hope do everybody else have without it? And Revelation, this book that's largely filled with judgment on earth, you know, only 20% is given to this message to the church, and that's by chapter numbers, not by verse numbers. That this judgment that comes on the earth begins with the judgment of God's church. At least those who claim to be His. At least those who at one time had a lampstand in heaven. And what kind of church do you go to? And what does your church desire to be? What do its actions, its beliefs, its words, its faith show it to be? And really, that's an outflowing of who its people are. So what kind of Christian are you and I? Truthfully. Not what we think we are. Sometimes we need to get that outside opinion. And What kind of believer do you and I aim to be? What are the goals that we have as believers? What agenda is ours in life? And not just what we say, but the path of our lives. Is it following the course that we know from the Scripture to be Right. Or is it something else? And even if we think it's right, is it truly the course that God would have us follow as His believers and as a church? And Lord, we do pray that God, this morning as we dig into Revelation 2 and Your Word for the church, for Your church, that God, we would be willing to listen and to hear and give us those ears to hear that we might um, follow You and trust You, God. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at the first seven verses only. Uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus. And the title of today's message, I really struggled. At first, I wanted to call it Nevertheless. But I think we'll go with the more graceful title of He Who Has an Ear. He Who Has an Ear. Do you have ears? I have two ears, thankfully. Perhaps if you're listening, you might not. You might only have one. Perhaps you can't hear at all, but... If you can read the Word of God and ingest it, can you hear it? Can you hear it? Let's read Revelation 2, 1-7. through 7. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says the he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, Jesus says, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I don't want to forget this, but Jesus says that we need as a church to listen to what the Spirit is saying. If the church isn't listening to what the Spirit is saying, is it a church? What's the church listening to? It's not the church of God, the Holy Spirit. What we see in these uh, letters to the churches, these chunks of little verses that are written out to the churches, excuse me, We see that there's similar structure across these letters. Um, An address to a particular congregation, we see to the Church of the Ephesians. An introduction of who Jesus is. We get him here as the one, the same vision that John had. A statement regarding the current condition of the Church. Uh, Jesus' verdict and what he thinks about the condition of the Church. And then a command to the Church based on that verdict and their condition. And then it includes a general exhortation to all Christians and a promise of reward. That Jesus says, look, I want to reward you. I want to have you with me. But you can't if you continue like this. If you continue doing the wrong thing, you can't expect to get a good thing at the end. You know, again, if I continue to eat Oreos instead of chicken breasts for a snack, I can't ever expect to look like The Rock. I don't know if my wife ever wants me to look like the rock. But. <laughs> but this word angel, again, it means messenger. Again, it's to the pastor, to the leadership of the church. But if a church is going astray, it's the pastor's responsibility to correct it. Obviously, the Lord has the responsibility to give the word to the church, and the church has the responsibility to listen. But that there's a, there's this double judgment for pastors and it's it's scary it says you know it's a good thing to desire to be a pastor teacher a leader but to know that what comes with it is worse judgment not only do people look at me differently when they know i'm a pastor not only if uh, i ever uh, speak the word of god and people listen that i'm doubly accountable that i'm sharing it correctly not only in doctrine but also in word and spirit that i don't beat when i should comfort and i don't comfort when i should give them a little smack. But again, if that church is going astray, who else is going to correct it? If the pastor is going one way and the congregation sees it's wrong, the congregation can try, you know, sort of like our children can try and correct each other and keep each other going the right way. But if the pastor's going the wrong way, the church can't just decide to, to not go the same way as the pastor. It's going to cause division. So what does the Bible say? If that's the case, after uh, I won't get into all the details how, we, how you're supposed to handle it. That's for another study. But at some point, you need to leave quietly and find another place. If you're not being led in the right things of God and taught in the right things of God, you're not the cause to cause division. You're not to hide and not be truthful. But you're not to sit there and, you know, the pastor's doing this, and so you guys should follow me. Come with me instead. We're going to start a Bible study at my house. That was like one of our biggest concerns when we came down here before we started church was that we couldn't be totally honest with people because we didn't want to cause any division amongst the body out here. And I've even been in situations when things were going wrong and I had to in a sense bite my tongue so I wouldn't backbite the pastor. I would say what was necessary. But Jesus is the head of the church and he's over the the head pastor, he's over the leadership who are over the people, and I say that not in value, the pastor's not worth more, the pastor's not necessarily more holy, or more special, but there is a spiritual authority there. And it's the same problem that the world has with the family, that the father is the spiritual head of the home, as Christ is the head of the church, and the wife is a picture of the church under Jesus. And again, it's not that the church should be uh, stepped on, or the wife should be stepped on, but it's the father's responsibility to guide the family. And I'm thankful for single moms and women who step up to the plate, but truthfully... It's not their job. It's a man's responsibility to do. And if he's not doing it, that's a big problem. And we see the fruit of that in our society and in our church, that the church today, how many men are strong in churches? Thankfully, the church we came from in New York was very strong with men, men who love the Lord, women who love the Lord. I think it was a good, healthy balance there. But other churches, you go, it's like, where are the men? They're there, but are they really there? In Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls and those who must give an account. As those who must give an account. that I have to give an account to God one day. This is what I did with the people that you put in my life to minister to. Did I share the truth with them or did I not? Did they go astray and did I not say anything? When I should have? And the verse goes on, it says, Let them do so with joy and not with grief. But that would be unprofitable for you. The writer of Hebrews says, be good to your pastor. Be good to your leadership. Not butter them up and suck up to them and bribe them, but why should they be grieved watching out for you? Why are you going to be a bad kid? Be a good kid. It's bad for you if, if, if they have grief. If, if, if they don't have grief, if I could think to the youth group, kids who might give me grief. I still love them. I want to be around but I couldn't bless them the same way I could bless other kids. I couldn't give them the same opportunities that other kids, and the Lord certainly didn't. Man, this would be so much better for them if they just behaved and listened. I say, it's my kids all the time. You know, like, look, like, is this fun? Do you like getting in trouble? Is it fun to be in time out? Is it fun to lose your privileges to do things? No. Then why do you do it? If you didn't do it, you, I could bless you. We could be out going for ice cream right now, but instead you're in timeout. That's the same thing. Bless those in leadership, even if they say things to you that are hard spiritually. But a church reflects its leadership. The attitudes, the beliefs, the actions, even the dress of the senior pastor or the leadership is reflected among the body. I have never seen more people wearing Harley Davidson shirts, even when I drove through uh, South Dakota and Sturgis, than I did at the church in New York, because the senior pastor... Loved Harley shirts. I loved my flannel. He loved his Harley shirts. And everyone had Harley shirts. Even people who had never had a motorcycle. People come in with leather jackets. He Drove in in a Prius. It's because they loved their pastor and they began to reflect him. And that can be a good thing. Because we're supposed to imitate them as they imitate Christ, right? And follow them as they follow the Lord. But I think it'd also be a bad thing, because people can watch a pastor, and if pastor watches a G movie, maybe they think they can watch a PG movie. Oh, pastor watches that, so what I'm watching now totally isn't bad. And that's a tough one. I like my movies. So I'm never going to invite anybody over to see my collection. <laughs> but sincerely, the church in Ephesus was a famous city in the ancient world. Uh, I taught through Ephesus at Youth Group a long time ago. It's a great book. It's a message largely of grace, but uh, it was a large city. It was a famous city and had an equally famous church. Think of it as a megachurch in Ephesus. Uh, Paul ministered there. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla, Apollos, these people we see in Acts. Uh, Timothy was the pastor there for a while. Um, Apparently, Apostle John also ministered there. But the city was also known for uh, the Temple to Diana. She was apparently a fertility goddess worshiped with immoral sexual activity. And this uh, temple was so big, it was regarded as one of the the seven wonders of the world at that time. But I do remember from my studies today that there was a lot of witchcraft there and that even that some of these uh, priestesses, these virgins to Diana, these prostitutes would even find their ways into different cave systems. And that apparently even the temple might have been built on this system where even gases would come out of the rocks or the air or something and they would get high and worship and have these demonic visions. And this is the city of Ephesus. And to this church that lives in this famous city, Jesus introduces himself specifically. This is for me, guys. And Maybe you're not listening to the pastor. Listen to the word of God. Listen to Jesus. Even if you don't listen to me, listen to what Revelation says. He talks about these golden lampstands. These are obviously the churches, but these are God's churches. They're supposed to reflect God. This gold is a symbol of deity. And to this church here, there's good things. Jesus says, I know your works. And this word means business, employment, their acts, their deeds, the things in which they are occupied. So I wonder, what is the occupation of your church? Is it preaching the word of God? Is it loving the lost? Is it have opportunities for giving and for fellowship? What's the point of the church? Is it just a club? Is it just to get together? Is it just a family? Good things. But is that really what the church is built on? It says, I know your labor, your intense labor, trouble with sorrow, even being beaten for it, Think about these people living in this uh, drug-filled idolatry witchcraft city. That's a big major city. Think about that. The things that they must face there, but that they continue the work despite it being hard. Like Galatians six nine says, "Do not grow weary in doing good." Jesus says that they have patience. That's a good thing. It's uh, love is patient, right? It says that they cannot bear those who are evil. That they don't hold up those who are evil, that they live in an evil city and they can't stand it. They can't stand the evil and the wickedness that they see all around them every day. They can't stand the things that the people do and the evil people who uh, prop them up. And I think it's like probably most of us when we turn on the TV or we listen to uh, what is being propped up as law. But they don't make excuses or endorse the things of evil. And is this the church today in America? Does the church in America, or does your church or my church make allegiances and stand up with things that aren't so righteous, or even worse, things that are downright evil? I was uh, watching, uh, uh, it's a video, but I kind of listened to it like a podcast, and uh, one thing was this guy talking at this conference, a technology conference, a hacker conference actually, but he talked about scouting locations for uh, a movie. And he talked about one part of it was talking about churches and things. He's like, Oh, like it it takes a long, they have to have a board meeting and then they have to approve the script. And a lot of studios don't do that. But we found this, we had, we wanted to do this homosexual act in a church for the show and we found one church that was excited to be a part of it because they had just started ordaining something or some something they were doing was trying to promote that lifestyle and it being okay. I think I know what Jesus would say to them. Repent. But the Ephesian church that wasn't them. They pursued doctrinal purity. Uh, Paul warned the Ephesians in Acts to do this. Um, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves therefore watch and remember that for three years i did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears paul says but that they paid attention to this they wanted to make sure that their doctrine was correct that when they read the bible and they taught the bible it was correct i can think of like the church that we came out of out of calvary that they were always concerned about the doctrine being correct and i think that that was fantastic and i want to be the same way. I want to make sure that my doctrine is correct. And then when I do preach, I'm not preaching just my opinion, but what the scripture says. And if I give my opinion, I'm not so beholden to it that I'm going to cast someone out who doesn't believe the same exact thing I do about the non-essentials. But said that this church also tested false apostles, that Jesus commended them on this. And man, if only more people today would test the message and those who preach that message to them, like those on TV, those in megachurches, those who write books just to see if that message is true. Be a Berean. Check the scriptures. Is it true? Don't just take it because they have a big church sign behind them because they have 2,000 people that go to or 10,000 people, whatever it is, it doesn't necessarily mean they're right. People follow people off the edge of a cliff all day long. Spurgeon says that this was grand to them. It showed a backbone of truth. And he says, I wish that some churches of this age had a little bit of this holy decision about them. Man, We're so afraid to stand on doctrine and truth these days of the church. And if anybody should stand on doctrine and truth, it's the church. So who else is going to do it? It's the church's role. Jesus says that they've persevered and have patience, that they continue on, they hang on, despite it being hard. And he even says that they've labored and not grown weary. Again, it's a commendation for their obedience. And that they're not weary and doing good. That they're going to keep doing good until there's no more good to be done. But they did all this, all these great things, all these things we would look at, oh, this church is healthy. It's doing a lot of good things. It continues to do a lot of things. It faces persecution. It doesn't like evil things. It stands up against wrong doctrines. Uh, it makes sure that its doctrine is correct. It tests people who claim to be uh, preaching the truth and finds them either to be true or not. And they keep going on that the church isn't right. Jesus says, I'm going to remove your lampstand if you don't. Repent. Wow. That This church doing all these great things has this wonderful appearance in this mega city is known around the world and yet Jesus says you've left your first love. That all these things don't matter. Like Paul says, there's a clanging cymbal, a resounding brass, but it has not love. That they can be so right about so many things and live so rightly and do so many righteous things and yet they've lost God. They don't have love. Somehow they've left the love for Jesus that even hanging tightly under doing the right thing and not being a part of evil, somehow in doing that, they've stopped loving Jesus. They're so busy about doing other things, about laboring, even testing other people who claim to be Christians that they've forgotten what it's like to love. And haven't we seen that? People think that their gift is, uh, what's the word? Um, Not complaining. Criticism. Criticism has its place. But if all we do are criticizing other people and trying to see if they're right or wrong, but we're not doing it in a loving way, what's the point? Because they've fallen out of love with Jesus himself And not quite as harsh as this, but John 5.39-40 says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, Jesus says, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. That you've gotten your doctrine so right, but that you forget who the doctrine is speaking about. Forget to have a relationship with the one the doctrine describes. Because everything we do, spiritually and practically, in the church, at home, at work, every motive needs to spring from our relationship with Jesus. And our love from Him, and more so than that, the love that we receive from Him. Because we only love Him because He first loved us. And I know that if I'm not in a place to re- receive the, the love of God, if I'm rejecting it for some reason, I stop loving those around me. And what's the cure for this? It's simple. Remember where you have fallen. Repent and go back and do that stuff. We treat it not as a big deal. Oh, well, they're doing all this good stuff. It's not that big a deal. I'm not as friendly or loving as I used to be. But it's huge. It's fallen. And much like in the garden, Eve loved the thought of the supposed enlightenment and the look of the fruit more than God in that moment. Adam loved the sight of Eve and being with her and her liking him more than the love of God in that moment. And it cost them everything. And it could cost the Ephesian church everything. Your lampstand will be removed. My light, my spirit will be gone from you. If you don't repent, I can't... Jesus says, I can't dwell in this. I can't live in this. I can't inhabit this. Because it's not love. And what does the Bible say? That God is love. To remember what it was like in those early days, what do we have to do? We have to stop and remember. Not look on our current accomplishments, but look back in the past and say, what was our life like when we first came to Jesus? What was our church like when we were just about the things of Jesus? Jesus remember the early days. For me, getting saved personally and the church I went to were very the church was very young when I got saved and became part of it, so they both went hand in hand. The early days of me staying up late and worshipping all night with my disc man and going to the church and there was fellowship and evangelism. We'd all be at each other's houses every day and it wasn't about who was in what position and doing what. It was about coming together, hearing the word of God and worshipping and there wasn't division. There was unity and it didn't matter. We all shared things and it wasn't like we were Socialist and failed, but it's like man if you needed help if you needed a plane ticket if you needed a place to sleep If you needed a place to hang out if you were lonely if you were sad if you were happy if you, we just wanted to be together as a family And it's sad. I just read the other day that it's uh, most people over the holidays don't make it longer than four hours with their family And I know my family is a lot like that Uh my side of the family, but man, I, I hope, you know, I think about it all the time, my kids and how good we all get along now. And I, I'm always constantly kind of weighing our conversations and how open they are or not. as I never want them to be closed. I never want them to go down the path to the point where we've left, left our first love of daddy and mommy and our children and each other. But this church has done that. But they can get back. And it's really simple to get back just takes repentance it's all it takes to get back to jesus it's all it takes to get back to the love of god and love of others Is just a simple two-second act of repenting god you're absolutely right i'm wrong i've remembered i thought about it and i'm not the way i used to be i had way more of your love in the past i love others way more please forgive me make it right and right there it's already started on the right path it may take a while for those waves to spread out that's the right path because it's not simply just going back and doing the same things again. It's not simply me just putting on worship music at night or inviting people over for lunch or whatever it is. Because if it doesn't have love, there's it's no different. And the only way that love is going to come back, if that repentance starts in the heart and the soul and the spirit, because that's where the love can flow from. Because if there's no repentance, you, you can't make... Love doesn't make... works don't make love. But even if we don't feel that love, we need to continue in those works. And those works don't mean anything without faith. Because the one who walks amongst the lampstand before those works and see those works, they need to be done in the right way. And repentance is the only thing that's going to get us lit again and on fire again for him. No amount of sermons and worship nights and bright lights and guest speakers and events and camps and retreats is going to do it. Repentance doesn't happen. That's where all these great revivals come from. They come from repentance. And I think it's really interesting that a church that seemingly is doing everything right isn't. In fact, they've, in a sense, done nothing right because they need to repent and do the first works and fall in love with God and each other again. Does everything look right at your church? But something is off? Maybe everything's going well, everything's running smoothly, new people are coming, and things are happening. But there's just something different. Something missing. And maybe you can't put your finger on it. Maybe all these good things happen, but it's still just missing something. It's not quite the same as it used to be. This is it. It's left its first love. Needs to repent. And my dear, late friend, Pastor Tony Schott, he pastored a church in New York. He used to wipe their calendar every so often at church because they'd be busy about a lot of things. And he would say, okay, it's time to stop everything. We're going to stop everything for such and such time. And these things may not come back. We're going to spend time in prayer and with each other and making the main thing the main thing. to Make sure that they didn't leave their first love. And Jesus says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If they don't repent, their church won't shine anymore. They won't have the light of God in them, but they may be a church in name, but they won't have a place in heaven. That's a scary thing. We see dying churches, dead churches, especially in Europe. All these old amazing churches from the thousands of years, built up like castles of stone and... um, you know, stained glass, one burned down in uh, France, I believe it was. They're empty buildings now. A place where people used to go to hear from God and worship and sing and preach the word are now music venues, bars, luxury apartments. The Spirit of God is not in them anymore because the church is not the building, it's the people. And just because the building and the organization and the business, so to speak, operates right, If the people aren't in love with God and each other, it's nothing. Because at some point they stop loving God, and then we automatically stop loving others. And at some point you just completely stop doing it all. Because the church may continue even a long time after this, but it's dead. The glory of God no longer remains in it. And so they search for a point, they search for a reason, and they end up doing weird things and believing weird things. Services to nature. Services to baptize your dog. What are you doing? It's obvious from the outside you've left your first love. Did you even have the first love? Jesus says, this you have, They hate the deed of the Nicolaitans as we get here to wrap up. The Nicolaitans were this sect of Gnostics that they, uh, they came out in this time that they led lives of unrestrained indulgence. They believed That uh, they could, uh, they would do anything. They would practice adultery. They would eat things sacrificed to idol. They were worldly Christians, or just worldly people who claim to be Christians. I don't know. You know, we're splitting hairs there. But uh, basically, they departed from correct doctrine. uh, The commentary says. And they were in the habit of indifference to both life and food, that they lived in their culture, they would eat, they would drink. And they said basically that, uh, you know, the things you do in the flesh have no impact on the spirit. And that's not true. That's not true. They also, the word, as some other people take it as, you know, the word actually means to conquer people. But we see that, uh, you know, that these people also set up apostolic authority, uh, that they set up hierarchies that separated the clergy from the laity. Uh, that the uh, Nicolaitans had these aspects that they were idolatrous, immoral, presumptuous, hierarchical. They had hidden mysteries all in their system of worship. And do we not see churches or whole, quote unquote, churches that operate in these ways today? And it's not it. I'm not your gateway to God. I'm just here to teach you and hopefully lead you to a relationship with God that, in the same way that I go to Him, I don't want you to go to Him. And Barclay says, The Nicolaitans, like all deceivers that come from the body of Christ, like Paul was saying, they'll come out of you, claimed not that they were destroying Christianity, but that they were presenting an improved and modernized version of it. And look at all these false churches today that claim that they've made Christianity somehow better, more tolerant, more enlightened. How can you believe that that is wrong? How can you say that about people who have that lifestyle? But Jesus says that these deeds I also hate. That Jesus doesn't hate them, but he hates the things they do. Especially the things of churches that claim to be of him and his word and claim to preach the things of him. And they put distance between God and him. But Jesus says, He who has an ear, he's speaking to everyone, but who will listen? Because some will hear these words, and won't think it's for them. Or they'll make excuses. Oh, well, you know, that that can't be us, you know, because we have the love of God. But you've redefined what love is. Others will let it go through them. Let this word examine them in the light of God and begin to examine themselves. And the outcome, hopefully, prayerfully, is repentance. Because it's something that must be overcome. Jesus says to them that overcome, that I'm telling this word, not all of you are going to overcome it that you have to repent and have to continue in that repentance to overcome it. Otherwise, your lampstand will be removed. But some people are going to listen and be a right church that continues on, and others are not going to listen, and their lampstand is going to be removed. But it has to be overcome. We can't lose our salvation, but in a sense, I believe the church, at least as a body, can leave it. And the church has left it. I think that the church is really the people have left it. Because if we've left our first love, again, that's only going to be fixed by repentance. Because if we've left the love, the only way we can fix it, like a marriage, if you've left your marriage, left your spouse, the only way that marriage is going to be fixed is by you repenting, turning around, and going back to it, and falling back in love with it. And those who overcome, Jesus says, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life in heaven. That's scary. If You don't overcome, you don't have a right to, to eat from the tree of eternal life in heaven. And again, I wonder, you know, if you don't overcome, were you ever saved in the first place? So it kind of opens up a can of worms. But simply, it's not works-based salvation. It's works-based sanctification. That, yeah, salvation is guaranteed, but man, if we want any right in heaven, we need to continue in repentance. Repentance isn't just the thing I did 16 years ago. It's the thing I did this morning. It's the thing I did when we prayed. It's the thing that I do, hopefully, when the Lord reminds me of sin. Again, there are some varying opinions, but some say this church age of the Ephesian church was from eighty thirty to one hundred, and perhaps this actual church in Ephesus only made it seventy more years. And then it's lampstand was mm-hmm. removed. There's no the church in Ephesus that Paul founded that, you know, these guys were there doesn't exist today. There's probably still churches in the Ephesian city, but not this church. So what does that tell you? That not all of them listened. We see that this made it the first generation after Jesus, 70 years from the ascension, that they would have grown up knowing Jesus, seeing him walk and ascend, and then their kids would have. But after that, things changed. And I believe this can show us that it's every generation's responsibility to carry on the faith. That we cannot rely on the faith of our parents. We cannot rely on the faith of our church elders. It is our responsibility. And even me, at the measly age of 38, I'm realizing 38 is old and my time is coming and going. In 12 years, I'm going to be 50. How much physical strength am I going to have? In 22 years, at 60, how much physical strength am I going to have? Not much. Far less than I have now. And I have far less now than I did 15 years ago. It's, my time is already waxing. Or Wayne, I don't know, you know, the one that's setting. It's already the time for our children's faith to rise up, the teenagers' faith to rise up. It's my, my responsibility to guide them up for them to do the works. My time, I still have plenty of time to do works in life, but they're not going to be as great as the generations now. So if my kids don't get their own faith, when I die, their faith will die with it. And what opportunity are given? Are they given opportunity to love Jesus? Or are they turned off by the church? Turned away by their parents? Because the church, its leadership, their parents have left their first love and they're too concerned about works, appearances, who is right and who is wrong, then they'll love their children to Jesus. Then they'll love them like Jesus does. So, he who has an ear, let him or her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, we want to repent of everything that we've left our first love because you tell us that. We don't want our lampstand removed. We want it to glow brightly that the world might see you. That our children might see you. That even if you don't come back for a hundred or a thousand years, I don't think that's possible, but if even if you don't, that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren would have faith and their life would not go out. So God, let that be by your Spirit. Let us listen to your Spirit, especially those of us who are in leadership, who are pastors, who are teachers, that we would hold fast to doctrine that God the church that are doing the right things will continue in the right things and yet still repent and keep their first love bless the church in, in this area that they would always be following you and be listening to your spirit God we trust you in Jesus name come soon we pray amen there is a vineyard of the Lord there is a vineyard for us, soul with all Trouble's left behind And door We drink first light Until the door